Welcome to the Blackout Podcast, where I get to talk to amazing people who do amazing things. And today, welcome back, Chris Henningsen, my friend. I always call you the Renaissance man because you have so many things you're doing. And today, you came back with two books you've written. So I'm just going to dive into that. But welcome to the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Israel. And it's really great to see you again. What a couple of years we've had, eh? Right, <laughs> right. COVID happened. Actually, let's start with that before we get into mm-hmm. the book. So COVID, how was that for you? Uh, so I was not affected in a negative way personally, really, by COVID. Um, I actually had always thought that working from home made more sense. You save the commute, you don't uh, pollute going into the office, you can, you have a bit more mobility. It's great for the kind of small rural communities I come from. So when we started working from home, I was actually, I was very happy with that and I've, uh, I've made sure that as some companies started um, getting people back into a centralized office in a mandatory way that I've stayed with places where there's more flexibility and more um, understanding of remote first work. So uh, that was the big change in my life. Uh, well, that and uh, that my, my current partner reached out to me during COVID to just see how things were going. So uh, I probably wouldn't be in that relationship now if she hadn't uh, been yeah, stuck at home and wanting to reconnect. So uh, there, it's been mostly positive changes for mm. me personally. Yeah, one thing I guess, you know, I was actually talking about this with a friend that, you know, it happened in waves and now we're mm. at the, okay, it's fine wave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then um, there's a reverse <laughs> happening in China where it's mm. like gangbusters there because they had this zero policy and now it's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, I, I remember, I think, towards the end of the second wave, people were making fun of this, oh, just two weeks to flatten the curve kind of thing. But I guess the, the idea there was, um, yeah, we know we can't prevent COVID. We can't cause a virus to go extinct. We've never been able to do that. It's a very quick spreading, <laughs> quick mutating virus. So of course, if we were able to make one virus go extinct, it wouldn't be this one. Mm. Um, so the, the, the idea that we, you know, we, I guess almost like uh, we, we needed a, uh, a, a social crumple zone. We needed, the, we needed to spread the impact over a longer time mm. where uh, it, it sounds like China's uh, zero COVID policy was a way of trying to avoid that impact altogether. And then, of course, there, there were stresses there. And then now that they've finally opened up, um, by all accounts I've heard because they have to, the, uh, the, the COVID is hitting in a much faster way because... Mm. Yeah, people, uh, people's immune systems go down when you force them to isolate. Who knew? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, like, like yourself, I kind of also adapted. And I've, I've always been of the, it makes sense, especially if you're working on a frigging computer. Like mm, if that's mm-hmm. all you have to do, just push buttons and the internet and you can keep, keep in touch with people. 
you really don't have to drive into an office. Yeah, you know? yeah, and it's uh, it, there is um, there is also, of course, the fact that you know not everyone has that option. Um, some people still have to mm. keep the grocery stores working, like uh, teachers also. Yeah, well, I, I I feel like education was a bit of a, a missed opportunity during COVID. I would have loved it. Um, if there was a bit more like remote first schooling also, because mm. uh, you could maybe with the with the right support system. Right, exactly, really, uh... right support system. Because <laughs> um, um, I do something like with this nonprofit and there's kind of like a learning thing there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they did was actually give the students like tablets and some mm. of them laptops. So having that type of support is really important though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, I mean, we're seeing a lot of people going to homeschooling, which if your child is going to be at home, why not? Mm -hmm. um, you're kind of doing the, uh, the social aspect of the, um, just keeping things from burning down mm. that, uh, that a teacher would normally do. Your kid can just close the laptop. Your teacher can't really <laughs> can't really perform that function if you're learning remotely. Yeah, that's <laughs> so very true. Their parents are doing that anyway. Why not also uh, mm. give them the lesson plans? So I I think that's uh, that's kind of cool. But it would have been very good to see because the education system could kind of I think use a bit of an overhaul anyway. Don't mm. you? Mm, mm, that's very true and I mean anyway I don't want to get into that because I have my own thoughts on education system I'm not a fan of it so mm. <laughs> I'm not gonna get into that but before we get into the books let's talk about the cannabis business what's the story there oh yeah um so that was uh my my friend and I had always had this idea that uh, incubators and accelerators places where people have a technical idea and they try to prove it out, um, that it's a huge waste of resources to do those in big cities. Because if you're, like I know, for example, um, just down the road. Volta. Uh, Volta, yeah. There's someone there who's working on a better traffic light system. And they've, they've got this office building in like the most expensive part of Halifax. Um, and they're like putting together prototypes of a traffic light system, which is really cool. But when you think about the space it takes to build out a prototype like that, and how often you would actually need to meet with someone mm. versus um, having versus being in a downtown core location. Uh, we came from this kind of rural community where people who do knowledge work tend to move to the big cities. Mm. But particularly with COVID, um, that wasn't so necessary. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the idea that we had was, well, if you just had like a working farm and the people doing the accelerator were just in a, in a building in a farm where space is so cheap um, and you had them, you know, working a couple of hours, it's basically like you get a free gym membership, mm. but you're also producing some food that people there can eat. Um, it seemed like just a better way to do an incubator. So our idea with the cannabis business was, well, we have all this land. Um, if we can get a cash crop going that can fund like a full-time income in an area like this, then we could build out a, uh, an incubator in a rural setting mm. um, and get all these, get much more runway because, you know, you're not paying rent mm -hmm. in a, a downtown space. 
So you can afford to have people take like maybe four or five years instead of one or two to mm. prove out their concepts so people can try more difficult things. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a neat idea. The only problem was uh, actually making money off cannabis is really hard right now. How? Oh. Uh, so a couple of things. There's a lot of competition from the gray market. So <laughs> what's a gray market? Like I've never had the gray. I mean, have I? No, I don't think so. Uh, the, so the gray market is like it's not. I can, for example, um, I can grow four personal plants, and me personally, I can grow varieties that grow quite big. For plants, I can grow a lot more than I can smoke in a year. Mm. Um, and then I'm not allowed to sell it, but if I say, like, hey, come to my party, and you know that there'll be a lot of free weed available, you know, uh, Snoop Dogg, for example, um, when he started getting into rapping, he had this former career as a drug dealer, he would always just give people that he worked with a bag, like a large bag of weed. And people would like to work with him. <laughs> Who knew? So that's like a gray market, like right. barter, circumventing the laws. Right. Um, it's uh, so the the price of um, the price of bulk flour in Canada really kind of cratered over the time that we were, you know, we took a year just to get our license, and then another year to grow a crop, and then we were like, oh, we're making like two dollars a gram, right. <laughs> and we we only have like. 200 square meters right. to grow. So it was, uh, yeah, it was challenging in that way to actually make money. So the, uh, the long-term idea of the rural incubator that we were looking to fund by having this um, very profitable cash crop, it turned out cannabis wasn't a very profitable cash crop. What would at you, the time we what tried would to you do it. like replace it with if you want to go forward with this idea? If I were to do it again? Uh, probably rental cabins, which would require oh. a bigger, um, yeah, 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 it would require a bigger upfront yep. investment. Yeah. But, uh, if you had a couple of rental cabins, you know, you've got your tourists coming in an Airbnb. You also, um, if you have this kind of, uh, te rural tech idea, um, it's very sexy to have people working on incubators and doing tech stuff so you would get a lot of free press mm. just from the fact that you're uh, that you have this um, you have this rural incubator thing going on and also and isn't would... like the government kind of trying to get people to go to the rural parts of Nova Scotia and stuff uh, I'm not sure no. how hard they're trying but uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're certainly I think they are they are funding um, they are funding the kind of intranet Internet, sorry, that makes that kind of thing possible. Oh, okay. Um, which, yeah, which was key to what mm. we were talking about mm. as well, of course. If everyone is just going on webinars to talk about their product, um, showing YouTube videos of their prototype in action, you don't need to do that. You don't really need to uh, to be in a central downtown. location. Yep. If there's an event downtown, you can still drive in mm -hmm. at that point. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, if I were to try it again, I'd probably try for yeah rent, rental cabins do more of a tourism thing um and you could still do gray market cannabis uh, for uh, <laughs> for personal plants you could still uh, incentivize people to stay at your place right you know, you know hey <laughs> yeah yeah so so um we're, we're talking a couple of you know a while back and then you're like hey you know so i wrote this book and it's called mindful programming yeah yeah um let's start with mindful programming the title and the, the cover page, it's like, 
It's kind of like binary, but not binary. It, yeah, it's kind of trinary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the title, there's a number of symbolism, but the idea of it actually is, um, I talk about in the book of different sorts of spiritual traditions and how uh, programming could be like a metaphor for another spiritual tradition. Mm. And if it is, uh, so some, some spiritual traditions are like, they're very abstract, very, um, very all things are one thing, uh, which, I, which I associate with that circular zero kind of a thing. And then some are very uh, particular and there's all these spirits in the world, you know, like the, uh, the, the, the Catholicisms and the Shintos and those kinds of things where there's all these particular things that are categorized and understood. And I think of that as the, the one kind of thing, like mind and matter mm. uh, in, the, in kind of a, a Western worldview. Uh, but there's also, in a lot of them, there's also the interplay and there's the constant change, like the, the great dance, um, which, I, which I symbolize with the, uh, the delta symbols in this. And um, because, so postmodernism, I think, would be like one of these changing things where everything is linguistic and mm. um, everything is seen relative to the observer rather than as a, as a truth in itself. Yep. Um, so that kind of, that linguistic thing, yeah, programming is all language. It's a kind of, a, it's a formal language and what you can do with purely formal language. Mm. So the, uh, the, the delta, which is usually used to symbolize change, um, symbolizes that aspect of it and it's kind of a, a through line. But there's also the binary of what a computer sees. So it's, yeah, that's, the, that's what the cover kind of refers to. Um, you're actually the first person to ask about the cover and where I could explain no, it. No, uh, that's that kind of what really stood out for me. But then the title itself, Mindful Programming, because, you mm -hmm. know, um, the first time I saw the title, I thought it was like kind of bringing like, uh, you know, mindfulness, mm -hmm. but also like programming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, let's talk about that first. Before I have another question from the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, the working title for a long time was actually Alchemical Programming. Because uh, what inspired the book, there were three inspirations, but one of them was this talk on laboratory alchemy that I saw. And alchemy is another one of these professions that um, it was doing practical stuff. It was making medicine uh, and I think also some metallurgy. But uh, the idea behind alchemy was also like perfecting the character mm -hmm. of the person working on it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a practical thing there was also a metaphor for developing yourself as you were developing what you were working on. I thought that was really cool. And at the time I was working on this uh, programming hobby project. I was spending a lot of time programming. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought, you know, programming could also be a metaphor because we think of, uh, com like we think of our minds as being like computers. In a lot of ways they are like computers. Um, and we, we have this interface to the, the guts of the, of the structure when mm. we're programming, um, which we sort of have in our minds, but it requires a bit of, um, I guess, a bit of understanding of what's going on. So the, the idea was that, well, there's a lot of traditions where a profession is a metaphor 
for internal development. Um, if programming were to become that kind of a metaphor, mm. how would it look? Uh, and I like the first line of the book is uh, this book is a failed attempt at a blog post because <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where you think like, oh, that's a neat idea. I'm going to just develop that. And usually when I do that, it all kind of converges to an obvious conclusion. Mm. But in this, it kind of just diverged. Like there was oh. always, every time I explored one aspect of that, mm. two more things worth exploring kind of came up. Mm -hmm. So I would explore those. Um, and before you know it, knew it, I had like half a book and I was like, well, maybe I should just write <laughs> a whole book. <laughs> I said I was going to mention something about the book. One of, you know, you quote the first line, but one of the lines was actually from a film I love, The Matrix. Oh, yeah. Like, how did Excellent. The Matrix get, I mean, obvious reasons, well, but I'm curious why you decided to put that in there. Yeah, well, so The Matrix was this very early um, artistic look at a simulation hypothesis, and, this, and uh, very much the way that I talk about the metaphor between um, the, the mind as a code or the, uh, the, the brain as code and the, the mind as a program executing. Um, the Matrix talked about reality as, uh, as a program um, and the idea of, well, what if you could see the code? What if you could just intervene in the code? Mm. Um, it's, I think, very much like an early, a really well carried off artistic uh, look at that same metaphor of uh, code and intervening in the, in the substructure and of course you know the hero is uh, a programmer um, yeah there's a I, there's a lot of quotes from the matrix no <laughs> friggin love the book I love the book and you know while it's talking the book one of the things that came out recently I think it was just a few weeks ago the internet lost its collective mind because mm. you go on this website you type a question and then the computer just spits out an answer oh, yeah, and you can write the answer like a pirate or you can write it like, uh, you know, someone <laughs> from 1800s and stuff. The chat GPT, yep. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I saw actually, I was just browsing Facebook this morning and I saw that uh, uh, Google, I guess, had a code red meeting because what if people would rather search on chat, would rather ask chat G GPT instead of uh, asking Google, Google you yeah. know? <laughs> um, back when the internet was new, there was Ask Jeeves, where it was kind of like more of a chatbot yeah. that was trying to find the answers for you. <laughs> yeah, I remember Ask Jeeves and, oh man, the internet, unlike us, and Excite, mm. and Yahoo. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah. so what are your thoughts on ChatGPT? Uh, so we're actually using ChatGPT at work. Oh. Um, we're starting to, yeah, because one of the things, and I find this... Um, very interesting, and I'll get into why. One of the things that ChatGPT can do is it can write rudimentary software for you. So you can say, like, uh, ChatGPT, write me a Python program to extract these values from a JSON file. Um, and ChatGPT will actually, like, generate the code for you. Wow. Eep. I should say so. <laughs> uh, the thing is, like, there's this idea of the singularity of uh, computers getting faster at an exponential rate. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, like the hardware has been getting faster at an exponential rate, but the software hasn't really been keeping up. Um, the idea was always that when computers can program themselves, even if they can only make like a, 
a 0.1% incre increase in their own effectiveness. Mm. Um, if they can start optimizing their own code, then you get that exponential thing. So uh, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think you could say, ChatGPT, write me a program that's a better version of ChatGPT. <laughs> I don't think ChatGPT could do that yet, but it can generate like very simple programs. And it's going to, uh, because that saves a lot of time for us. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's going to get a lot of data from people like us who are um, working with it. And uh, you know, most of us aren't paying for it. We're just letting it harvest our data. So it's going to be learning a lot mm. about um, programming just from getting people, people who get it to write their first draft for them. And then they make that it next iteration. It learns from that iteration. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting, um, an interesting thing to watch. So should we be afraid? Like, is, is Terminator going to happen and Skynet and all <laughs> that stuff? I actually have a chapter about that question in the book. Um, and my hope for the future, and I'm always, I always take an optimistic look at the future because I think, um, you know, if you're driving a truck, you you point your eyes to where you want to go, not where you're afraid of going. You know, you you look at the you look at where the road meets the horizon, not the ditch, because you tend to go where you're looking. So yeah. I tend to always take a, a positive look at these things. Mm. What I think um, computers can do is uh, they're very good at focused, rigorous work. So. Um, Ian McGilchrist, whom I also quote in the book, wrote this great book about um, the two halves of our brain and how we have this very um, <clears throat> focused, rigorous, reliable left half and this very holistic, um, incomprehensible, uh, big picture right brain half. Mm. and. Um, what I see, uh, well, actually, let me talk a little more about Ian McGilchrist here. His point in the book is that, um, you know, the left brain half is really good at executing, but it's not very good at prioritizing. Um, it, like, it can really help you like, work on, uh, let's say, a, a spear, but it doesn't see the tiger sneaking up on you, that maybe you should like, stop focusing on the <laughs> spear you're carving and like, use it even in its incomplete form. It's, uh, it's also, you know, it's that focused executing thing that we reward in mm. most of our work and most of our society. It's not very creative, but uh, it gets the job done. And his point was we've gotten too focused on getting the job done and we need to look more at uh, what job should we actually be doing, mm. you know. Um, and in that sense, uh, what I see as kind of the, the, the best case scenario is that computers do more of that getting the job done. They do more of that um, figuring out how to actually do it. And humans spend more time on the, well, what do we actually want to do? What, mm. what is worth doing? What gives me meaning? What gives the world meaning? Um, if I could do anything, what would I be doing? Um, I think that's kind of where our quintessential humanity shines. Mm. Um, whenever I see a person that I really admire, they spend a lot of time not just executing 
you know, whatever task is in front of them, they spend a lot of time uh, thinking about their priorities, um, about their source of meaning and um, what's worth doing, what not just matters. how to do it. Yeah. So if, uh, if computers are getting better at the how do we do it, um, I think what we need, and it's not like, it's not like we don't have problems <laughs> in the world. Like it's not like, it's not like, um, it's not like all the problems are solved, mm -hmm. and computers solving them a little bit better than us means that oh no, like we're not going to be able to, we're not going to be solving problems. Like we still have problems to solve, mm. um, and a lot of those are the kind of really, you know, wicked problems. Those problems where I I pull on this string and that part gets tighter. Um, the kind of things that don't have a neat conclusion that a computer could actually work on. Um, and I think we'll have enough problems for a long time. But I think what, uh, what is important, um, and I think what, in a best case scenario, this, uh, this new iteration of software is going to help us with, is that humans will need to spend more time on that. Well, what do we what actually want to do? Um, that, that big picture, uh, take a step back, see the whole thing. Um, I really like that kind of work. <laughs> <laughs> if a computer can make it uh, more, make it make more sense for me to be doing something like that mm. rather than something that a computer can now do, I think that's great. Um, and there will be some difficult adjustments. Uh, you know, there, there always are, and um, it's not going to be much comfort for the, you know, for the programmer who suddenly is having his job taken by a computer. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot more artists that maybe didn't have the time to invest in learning programming, but they can get ChatGPT to write them a program that actually is a better program mm. because it's solving the right problem. Um, that's my that's my hope uh, for where we'll where we'll get with this uh, with this new generation of software, I guess. So should we have like um, like an ethics committee or? You know, I we we talked about this with uh, biohacking the last time I was on here. I still believe that um, that it's better to have almost like a, an ecosystem. Um, rather than have one central place where very ethical people come together. And uh, it, sure, if we could, you know, that's always the idea of the philosopher kings, get, put the most ethical people in charge. Um, the trouble being, uh, it's, it might be kind of easy to game looking like the most ethical person. Mm -hmm. um, and then you... you You're already in the right. thing and then you can do whatever it is you want to <laughs> yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Ethical people tend to have a harder time with hard moral choices. Mm -hmm. um, it's, not, it's not something that, you know, that inspires confidence of a very ethical person. Like, I, I'm the one that gets to decide like, how many programmers are put out of work versus how many artists don't get to use the best tools. Mm. Um, that's a really and it's not that um, it's not that I don't think those decisions have to be made. Mm -hmm. It's that uh, I think no, th we can't give away our authority to right. make those kinds of decisions. Um, I think everyone has to decide for themselves <clears throat> what ethics are. You know, um, my my grandparents 
on, um, on both sides were in Germany during World War II as Germans. Um, both my grandfathers fought in the German Wehrmacht in some capacity or another. And uh, I've always thought about, you know, well, number one, how do you prevent that from happening here? But number two, if it happens here, uh, what do you do, mm. you know? Um, because they weren't Nazis, they were just patriotic Germans um, at a time when the wrong people got in charge. Mm. You know, if we, if we say, like, put the most ethical people in charge, like, that's what happens when you get some very passionate people that can seem very ethical to enough people to win an election. Mm. Um, and I think, actually, like the Nuremberg precedent, that uh, it's actually up to each individual if they see something unethical to say, like, no, I'm not this going is, along with this. Yeah. Um, I think that is the best answer we have. And uh, so ethics committees, like, yeah, if we have a lot of ethics committees. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, you and I talking about the ethics of this now, um, that seems like a great thing. And I, I think the more people do that, the better. Um, but I don't think we want to have one place mm, that's making place. the decision. This is the, you know, this kind of brings me back to foundation, right? And then mm. you wrote this other book, you know, Health Advice for Young Dragons. So it's like it starts <laughs> from the... Why did you decide to write a children's book? Uh, you know, sometimes the muse just grabs you and goes, you're doing this now. <laughs> yeah, um, so Health Advice for Young Dragons, it's, a, it's kind of a poetic take on, um, on five elements healing. Um, and Five Elements Healing, for those not familiar, is it's a way of putting the body in balance um, based on there's kind of traditional ideas around the universe being made of uh, earth, water, fire, air, plus in Five Elements space. Um, and the idea that each of these are also psychological states and physical parts of the body. So I talk about it kind of as phases of matter, mm. um, you know, solid, liquid, gas and plasma. And mm. then uh, space I relate to play in the book. So it's a, um, it's a lot of how I think about health in a personal way, mm. put, in a, put in verse and uh, with some great illustrations, not by yeah, me. Oh, I was about to ask that. <laughs> yeah, it's a guy uh, that I found on Upwork called uh, Alikan Taka, Takenaka or Tanakana? Takenaka, I think. Alikan Takenaka, um, who did these illustrations. He did a really good job. Mm. Um, I just kind of, I knew I wanted to have it professionally illustrated because I do abstract art, mm. but um, this kind of required more pictures for a child to recognize. And um, yeah, I, I put the I put the full manuscript on the thing, and uh, Ali Khan came back and was like, "Hey, I love this idea. Here's some sketches that I've already come up with." So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it clearly resonated with him, yeah. and he did an amazing job. No, it's beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. Talking of that and your abstract art, your print shop. Why did you decide to start one? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um, one reason is actually because I was um, I was going on more podcasts. Mm -hmm. I really I like the podcast medium. Um, I like uh, I like the 
the communication, the, the kind of the intense conversations mm. that one gets. So I was going on more of these and I was like, how can I add value here? And I figured, you know, um, everyone likes cross-promotion. Uh, every link to an episode that mm. I'm on is, uh, it's better for my Blackout podcast. Also for the other episodes, which you guys should all check out. Um, so I thought, you know, if I have also another product, if I, every time that I go on a podcast, I listen to an episode and make one piece of artwork, and then that's my promotional artwork for, so uh, because of how recently we scheduled this, I don't have a piece of artwork ready, but when this episode uh, goes live, what I'll do is I'll listen to maybe your most recent episode before that, make a piece of artwork, put that on my print shop and link it back to our episode. Nice. And uh, so in that way, there'll be this kind of um, lateral exchange of value. So it, it just seemed like a cool way for me to, uh, to, to give a little extra as a podcast. I love guest. it, I love it. I can't wait for what you make. I, I'm gonna <laughs> let you go, but you know, as a Renaissance man, as I say, you're always working on something. So uh, I'm gonna let you go with this question. What next? Uh, so right now, I have just done uh, a series of essays on time and quantum mechanics. Which of course. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you thought, um, yeah. if, you, if you guys who checked this book out, if you thought this was arduous, um, <laughs> I, actually, I actually cite my sources in this one. Mm. Um, I haven't quoted this came to me in a dream yet, but I think if I make another essay, I might just have to. <laughs> but uh, for, the, for the time being, it's all like serious uh, double slit quantum eraser uh, um, quantum theories of adaptive mutation. So there's a lot of really kind of surprising experimental results, mm. which because they don't fit with any existing worldviews, mm -hmm. we've just kind of been like, oh, that's weird. But I guess no one gets how quantum mechanics works. Right. So I try to make it um, a little more accessible to everyday intuition. Mm -hmm. I don't think I did a great job with these essays, frankly, because I've had people smarter than me read them and they're like, okay, it's, uh, it's dense. Because, <laughs> you know, when you work at the limit of your intellectual capacity, um, this was also something I worked on over years. And then mm. someone can be quite a bit smarter. And you know, um, I always believe the next generation will be smarter than we are. So it'll be easier for people to understand this stuff. The research that I did um, I do think there's something there. Mm. I don't think I made it quite that accessible. So what's next is probably I'm going to try to make that into more of like a, a fiction story oh. where the, the theories are kind of, where there's like a mentor that shows up and presents these theories in an applied way and uh, hopefully make it a little more accessible that way. But uh, if anyone wants to check out the actual theories themselves, um, I, I can definitely, we can put those in the show notes, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. yeah, so that's, uh, and that's what I'm working on these days. Wow, Chris, <laughs> it's always great to chat to you. Can't wait for, I hope you have another children's book coming out soon. I hope it's something you consider working on. Uh, but it's always great to have you on the podcast. Super grateful for having you here. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's, it's always great to chat with you and I really look forward to seeing the episode. Mm -hmm.